chapter 23. Our text today is in Luke 23, verse 44. You can find that on page 1046 in the Pew Bible. Page 1046 in your Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 23. Today we come to the pinnacle of the passion narrative. This is the moment in the story where Jesus Christ uh, dies and He gives up His life. So we come to a a very weighty, uh, somber uh, moment in the story full of gravity as we think about this very center of our Christian faith, which is the death of Christ for us. And so let's look at Luke chapter 23, verse 44. There it says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. When He had said this, He breathed His last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Well, as I said, today we come to the pinnacle of the passion narrative to the death of Jesus. Uh, we, We come to this moment that the whole story has building up to. And as we come to the moment where Christ dies in, in this story, I think it's critical that we ask the all-important question, why did Jesus die on the cross? And just come back to that basic issue, why has this happened? And someone might say, well, he died because he was charged with insurrection by the Romans, and therefore uh, they crucified him because that's what they did to insurrectionists and rebels in those days, which is true at a purely human level. But I'm not asking how did this come about. I'm asking why did he die? What was the purpose in all of this? Because as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that as Jesus goes to the cross, he's not being swept along by forces beyond his control. There's a very real sense in which Jesus is following a plan. It's almost as, even as Jesus is suffering, it's almost as if he's he's doing this intentionally. He's in control of the things that are happening to him. And so the question is, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did He follow this path? I mean, this is the very center of our faith. You know, look at this room we're in. This uh, wonderful, sort of stark, Puritan-esque meeting house, which I like uh, as as a style of worship. I like bare walls so we can focus on God's Word. But you know, there's one thing that we do have on the walls here, right? It's that cross right there. And so there's this one symbol, and it's right at the visual focal point in the architecture of this space. And that's not just us. Uh, You'll find that in Catholic churches. You'll find that in Orthodox churches. You'll find that in Presbyterian churches. They have crosses. Uh, So why is that that death so important that even in a stark Puritan-esque traditional space like this, we would feel that we needed to put a cross there to remind us of His death on the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? And if you can answer that question, if you understand the meaning of his death, you really understand Christianity. 
Even if a lot of the rest of it's kind of fuzzy to you and we read the story of Sarai and Hagar and she gives her maidservant as a wife and you're like, what is going on? Even if there's other parts of the Bible that seem opaque or historically distant, if you understand why Jesus died on the cross, you have the heart of Christianity. And so we come, in a sense, to the basics, to the very core of our faith as we look at this. And I think we have some clues. Specifically, there are two clues in this story that explain the significance of the cross. And they come in verses 44 and 45. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So as Jesus is dying, or right as he dies, or after he dies, somewhere like that, you have these two uh, strange phenomena that take place. One is that the sky turns dark. And we don't know if there was an eclipse or cloud came over or maybe, who knows, God God can do whatever God wants. He can darken the the sky however He wants to darken it. So we have that darkness that comes over. And then we have the curtain of the temple being torn in two. And I think that those are clues. And if you can put those clues together and interpret them, that they explain the significance, the spiritual significance of why Jesus died on the cross. So as I was kind of writing the sermon, I felt like I was writing a mystery novel a little bit. Because we have a whodunit. We have Jesus dying. Well, it's not really a whodunit. It's a why done it. Why did he die? And then there's these clues. And so if you ever, I don't know if any of you read mysteries or you watch like Dateline or they do these mystery shows where you try to solve some case and they you know, give you piece of evidence after piece of evidence and you try to weave it all together. So in a sense, that's what we have here. We have these clues that we're going to have to put together. So you've got to put your thinking caps on and you've got to follow me as we look through this uh, story and, and follow these clues to unravel the meaning of his death. So what I want to do is I'm going to look at each of the clues. And if you don't mind, I like to do them in reverse order. First, I want to think with you what it means that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And then go backwards to the darkness that covered the earth. And then put it all together and unlock the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross. So let's start uh, with the curtain first. I'll just read it again, verse 45. The curtain in the te- of the temple was torn in two. So, what temple are we talking about? And what curtain? Did it have windows? Were these like window treatments? Uh, you know, did the curtain rod break? Was it a shower curtain? Uh, you know, was there a priest taking a shower and suddenly it ripped open? He was like, ah! You know, it's, you know, what, you know what are we talking about? Uh, the, the, the temple is the temple in Jerusalem. That's the temple. And we know from other studies in Luke that the temple in Jerusalem was the very center of Jewish spiritual life and identity. If a Jewish person in those days was to draw a map of the world, so to speak, the very center of the world would be the temple. Because that's where God reigned over his people. And so they loved the temple. But you couldn't just go into the temple. There were a series of boundaries and barriers that separated the people from the temple. So if we were living in Jesus' day and we went up to the temple to check it out as maybe tourists or something, we wanted to see what this temple was all about, you would come into this enormous, enormous courtyard uh, with uh, columns, a colonnade all around it, people everywhere, and you would enter into this huge space and there would be the temple rising up in the middle, this uh, beautiful gleaming white building with gold uh, gilding around the edges of it, just shining in the sun. And we'd say, oh, I want to go see the temple. And you'd be standing in a place that was known as the Court of the Gentiles. Anybody could come there. 
You say, oh, let's go see the temple. But to get to the temple, you would have to go through a gate because the temple was in a walled enclosure inside that walled area. And that walled enclosure was called the Court of Women. And you could only go through the gate into the Court of Women if you were a ceremonially pure Jewish male or female. If you were not ceremonially pure or you're not Jewish, you could not cross that gate. In fact, uh, archaeologists have found you know, stone inscriptions that used to be above the gates that warned against immediate execution of anyone who crossed those gates who was a Gentile. So if I went in as a Gentile and walked through the gates, I'd be summarily executed right there by the guards if the mobs didn't kill me first because the Jews were very protective of that space. So now you're in the court of women. But if you want to get to the temple, you're now there and you look up and there would be two more gates leading uh, to this huge temple, but you'd have to get through those gates too. And to get through those, you'd pass into the court of Israel or sometimes called the court of men. And to get through that gate, you had to be a ceremonially pure Jewish male. Uh, and so now you go in through that gate if you meet those qualifications. And now you're standing in front of the temple itself. No more gates. It's right in front of you. There's a huge altar. There the priests are offering sacrifices, so it smells like a barbecue all the time. Maybe that's why it's only, only men who are in there. I don't know. But uh, they're, they're sacrificing animals. Think about the smells. It's interesting. They're sacrificing animals. The priests are there. The worshipers are there. The, the men of Israel. And there's the temple. And you say, oh, I'd love to go and see the inside of that temple. No, 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 no. <laughs> because now an, a select group of those people in that area can go in the temple. Only priests can go in. And not just any priest. They have to be the priests who are on duty. And only certain priests who that day were selected by the casting of the lots to be allowed to go into the temple building itself. So a very small number of people in Israel ever got to even see the inside of the temple. Now, the temple itself was a rectangular building. That was the floor plan. Just a big rectangle. And it was divided into two halves. The outer part that you would first come into was called the holy place. And that's where they had uh, a lamp that was burning all the time and they had incense that was burning and they put some bread out called the showbread. And so those priests would go in there, they would tend the lamps and they would tend the incense and all those kinds of things. And those priests would come in and out of there. But then there was an inner room next to the holy place, and the inner room was called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. And what is it that separated the inner holy place from the outer holy place? A curtain! That's the curtain! But don't think curtain, think tapestry. Think thick, embroidered fabric wall separating the inner holy place from the outer holy place. And nobody could go into the most holy place, except one person. There was only one guy in the whole nation who was allowed to go through that curtain. Who was that? The high priest. That's right. How many times a year could the high priest go through that curtain? Once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The only time you're allowed to go in. And he would go in and he would take with him the blood sacrifice of the bull uh, for, for the sins of the people. He would pass through that curtain and he would sprinkle the blood sacrifice for the sin of Israel in front of that altar to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And then he would leave. <laughs> that was the only time anyone got to go in. In fact, we're told in rabbinic tradition that he, they would tie bells around the, the hem of his garment and they would tie a string around his foot so that if he goofed up in there and like touched the Ark of the Covenant or something and you know God's judgment came against him, they could pull him out. <laughs> because it was that sacred. It was a sacred place. <clears throat> So the temple is kind of a funny thing, isn't it? 
I was thinking about the paradox of the temple. On the one hand, the temple says God is with us. It says that God is near us, that God has come to dwell in our midst of His people. He's there with His people. But it's also a statement of separation. Because while God is there, yet you can't get in there. And it's God, of course, who created these barriers in the Old Testament when He gave the instructions for how to build the tabernacle. Before the temple, there was a tabernacle. It was a tent that traveled around. But it had the same structure to it and the same barriers. The curtain was still there. So, you know, God wants to be with us, but he's also separated from us. What is going on with that? It's a really interesting thing. And I I believe what the curtain symbolizes, the reason there are all these barriers, the reason that the temple was kind of like the Pentagon. You could get into a certain level as a guest, but then you had to have a certain security clearance to get to the next level, and then a top secret security clearance to get to the next level. And and the reason it was set up like that was, was to communicate the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And frankly, this is an attribute of God that for the most part seems to be lost on us today, even in the church. The holiness of God. As we sang in that opening hymn, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Uh, uh, Rather, that's what it says in Isaiah. It says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That hymn we sang. And that comes right out of Isaiah chapter 6. If you know that passage of Scripture where Isaiah has a vision of God and these burning angels are flying around God. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And what's interesting in that vision of Isaiah is that as the angels fly around in the presence of God, they have six sets of wings. You know, with one they're flapping around. And then they have another set of wings. And what do they do? They cover their faces. It's as if these amazing, burning, angelic beings can't even look upon the holiness of God because it's so awesome. God's holiness is... It's the sum total of his, of his moral perfection. It's all of his character that makes him perfect and righteous and all of that summed up together. His glorious moral perfection is his holiness. And because he is holy, 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 he's separated. He's different. He, he's awesome. You know, we talk a lot today about loving God and worshiping God and celebrating Jesus But I don't know how much, even in my own life, and certainly we in the Evangelical Church in America, really grasp the idea of fearing God. You know, it says in the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says in the Old Testament that our God is a consuming fire. He's a holy, awesome God. Many of you have read um, Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you've seen the movie. And how how is Jesus represented? He's represented by this lion. Aslan the lion. And it's such a great image because on the one hand, you know, you want to go up and you want to hug him and bury your face in his mane because he's just this big cat. But on the other hand, he's a big lion. <laughs> like, whew, there's a little bit of awe there, as there should be. And so as C.S. Lewis says, Aslan is good, but he's not safe. And I like that. So there needs to be that, that awe of who God is and the reverence for his majesty. And so those barriers reminded the people that, yes, their God was among them, but it's not like the sort of New Age God you hear about today on TV talk shows where he's sort of a power source that is near us all and we can all tap into him and find strength to solve our problems in life. You know, that's how God is kind of presented today. No, no, this is a holy God who, who deserves our reverence and our worship, that, whom we need to, in some sense, fear as well as love and, and desire. He's a holy God.
And so because of that, he's separated. He's set apart and distinct. I was thinking about, um, maybe you're like my family growing up. We had a, a hutch in our house. Some of you had a curio cabinet. And your mom like, put her most sacred artifacts inside the curio cabinet. And it's like a teacup from your great-grandma and some crystal vase that supposedly was worth some money that somebody brought from Europe or whatever. And you had all these little trinkets that were in there. And they were locked away. They were sacred things. You didn't touch them. Right? If, if you went near the curio cabinet or the hutch, it was like, hey, 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 don't get near the hutch. Stay, don't, do not take a ball in there. You do not go near it. Get out. You know what? I don't even want you to look at it. Okay? Just don't even look at the curio cabinet. Stay away from it. And so mom was always threatening to, to keep that distance. You can't go near that thing. It's so sacred. And again, this is so lost on us today. The holiness of God, His sacredness. Nothing is sacred in our culture. You know, if anything is put up as sacred or important, you can bet that's what's going to be lampooned on the next episode of South Park. Because we, we find the sacred things and we mock them to bring them down to the most basic common denominator level. But this is a sacred thing. And so God is like that. He's, there are these barriers that separate us from God. Except there's one problem with that whole analogy with the curio cabinet or with the hutch. The problem with that analogy is in the case of the hutch, the hutch and the rules of space are intended to protect the things in the hutch from us. But the temple curtain was intended to protect us from the holiness of God. God isn't going to get broken, right? He's all set. We're the ones in danger. Because when a holy, righteous God comes into the presence of sinful, rebellious humanity, which we are, God reaches out and burns out in judgment against it. What you see in the Scriptures, whenever God's holiness comes unmediated into the contact of sinful man, it's destroyed. Sinful man is destroyed. It's like bringing a match closer and closer to a bonfire. And eventually the heat from it is just going to cause that match to ignite. God's holiness is a proactiveness. Let me put it this way, and this may sound a little harsh, but this is what the Bible teaches. God, you have to understand, God hates sin. He hates it. It it just infuriates Him. His wrath is kindled against sin. God hates all lying because He is truth. He hates infidelity and uh, uh, adultery and betrayal because He is faithfulness. God hates greed and idolatry because He is the only true God. And His wrath is kindled against these things. And so those barriers were there not to protect God from getting touched by us, to protect us from being destroyed by God. It's to remind us that He's a holy God and that He must demand judgment for sin. He hates it. And that, I believe, now leads us into the darkness that came over the land. So here's the next clue. As we try to understand the meaning of the death of Jesus, we have this curtain system. And then the darkness. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, so that means about noon. And darkness came over the land until 
the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m., for the sun had stopped shining. Now, what's the darkness about? Why is it there? Is that just to create a spooky mood? Is this like spooky music in a suspense movie that creates an ominous atmosphere? I think it's more than that. There's a reason that the sky turns dark and specifically the sun stops shining, however God did that. And what that means is when you go back to the Old Testament and look there at darkness imagery and the sun going dark, it's stock Old Testament language for the judgment of God against sin. That when God moves out the holy God into the presence of a sinful world and the day of the Lord comes, he destroys sin and it's described as the sky going dark and the sun going dark. Let me give you a couple examples or maybe just read one. I have a a piece of paper here with just lots of examples I found in the Old Testament of this language. Uh, Let me just read you one. Here's a for instance, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 to 13. And as I read it, here's what I want you to listen for. Listen for the language of God's Judgment against sin coupled with the imagery of darkness right, and the sky going dark. Here we go. See, the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. Here we go. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Why? I will punish the world for its evil the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. So what's happening here in this verse when the the darkness comes over the land is I believe God's judgment is being poured out. We see the anger of God against sin being expressed. And again, I understand that doesn't really compute with us today. You go to the average person and talk about the wrath and anger of God against sin, they're going to be like, you know, You've been reading too much Jonathan Edwards. Uh, by the way, you cannot read too much Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, but they're like, you know, this is from the Middle Ages. You know, we, we don't believe in a God who judges people. We don't believe in a God of wrath. I mean, come on. God's just a big fuzzy energy source that we plug into and he helps solve our problems. I mean, God's, that's all God is. He's great and happy and we all love him. He loves all of us and it's wonderful. And, and we don't think of this holy God. And of course that doesn't make sense to us because we are increasingly a relativistic culture. We have that, war, that view of truth and view of morality that's relative. Hey, that's okay for you. That's your truth, and this is my truth. And even though those truths are different, it's all right. It's whatever works for you. It's all relative. You believe what you want, and you do what you want, and it's all good. It's just different, that's all. And in that kind of understanding of truth, where truth and morality are relative, of course a God of judgment makes no sense. If you talk to relativists about God of judgment, it just goes, Phew. it doesn't compute at all. It doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? Of course God wouldn't judge because God's not intolerant, people would say. Except, of course, when there are great evils. And this is the interesting thing, is that even relativists and even atheists and people who don't believe there is any absolute truth when they come into the presence of great evil, they suddenly fall back into the language of absolutism and morality. I'm reading a book right now by David Wells, not the pitcher. He's a theologian. And, uh, he, uh, and he, he talks about, uh, in his book, it's called Above All Earthly Powers. And again, anything you can read by David Wells, you should read. It's great. But he talks about Jesus in a postmodern world. And his opening section is about 9-11. And it's interesting. He says... At 9-11, right after 9-11 happened, a lot of things changed in America. 
For instance, a lot of radio stations stop playing certain songs, especially even the, the hardcore stations, the alternative stations, because a lot of the music sung about death and killing, and people just thought, you know, probably shouldn't be playing that right after this. And even those stations stop playing certain songs. Uh, certain television programs were canceled. I, I believe, uh, wasn't there, there a beauty pageant that was supposed to air? And I think they canceled that because they thought, oh, yeah. It was such a weighty thing that's just happened. We probably shouldn't be having these sort of trivial, you know, meaningless TV shows. And let's put our coverage on the events of 9-11 and the immediate aftermath of that. But Wells noticed another thing that changed right after 9-11. He said there was a word that we stopped saying in our public discourse that came back into our language. He said the word that we began to say again was the word evil. We stopped talking about evil. Because how intolerant of anyone to call anyone else evil. But it's as if these events were so traumatic and awful that our kind of flimsy relativism of it's all okay couldn't sustain the weight of it. We couldn't hold 9-11 and say, well, it's okay, it's just a different viewpoint. You know? It just sounds obscene. And it is. And so our relativism fell apart at that point and people resorted back to the language of absolutism. They said, no, okay, okay no, no, that's evil. No matter what, in any culture, no matter who you are, that's wrong. And they're right, it is evil. It is a great evil, what happened. Uh, and, and so we resorted back to this absolute right and wrong language. We also resorted back to judgment. We said something needs to be done. There needs to be a retribution or a, a response or however people framed it. We have to do something in response to this. This can't go unchecked. This cannot go unanswered. And so in this, the face of great evil, we slip into the old biblical worldview but otherwise, we don't. Or another example I was thinking of, um, pedophilia. I hate to even say the word. It's awful even to, say, to hear that word. But when we hear about that, we go, okay, that's evil. That's, and it is. It's a great evil. And we say, oh, that's wrong. There should be some response to that, some judgment or punishment. And that's true. There should be. My point is, we're so calloused morally. We're so... Uh, saturated with relativism that we cannot feel moral right and wrong unless it's of an intense nature. And only when it's so strong and so heavy and so powerful does it break through our relativistic cushion and we begin to say, oh, okay, that really was bad. Here's the difference. God feels all evil. Not just the great atrocities of our age, but He even feels to secret evils that lurk deep within my heart that no one else sees. He sees it all. He feels it all. He knows it all. And He hates it all. Like we should too. God doesn't differentiate between levels of evil. He hates all evil and sin. And so His judgment is kindled against it. This God who is holy... Now the darkness comes over the whole land for the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Now God's judgment is being poured out. But here's the twist. Who is the judgment coming upon? Jesus. Which you're like, well, well, well. And here's the twist. Every murder, every uh, mystery has a twist in it. Right? You, read a, you watch a mystery and you think you're figuring out who it is. And then there's this like, whoosh, at the end. You're like, oh, man, my whole theory's blown apart. And, and here's the twist. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus? Why is Jesus receiving the wrath of God? In fact, look what the centurion says in verse 47. I mean, even this dumb Gentile centurion 
seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight, the people who condemned him to death, saw what took place, they beat their breasts. That's a sign of repentance and grief. Oh, we're sorry for what happened. This was not right. Even Jesus' prayer, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's not the prayer of a criminal. That's the prayer of a beloved son calling out to his father. In fact, Jesus is quoting a psalm there. And the psalm he's quoting is a psalm about a righteous, innocent sufferer. So even the Old Testament imagery is used to describe the innocence of Jesus. So there's there's a twist in our mystery. Okay, so here we have the judgment of God being poured out on Jesus. But he's the one guy who doesn't deserve it. And therein, if you can understand that, you understand the heart of the Gospel. That Jesus died as a substitute for us on the cross. You know, who should have been on the cross? You! And me. Especially me. We should be suffering the wrath of God. We should be under, we, under the condemnation of God. But the amazing story is that, yes, God is a holy, righteous God who hates sin, but He's also a God of love and mercy. And so, to be holy and loving, He has executed judgment on sin, but He's poured it out on His Son instead of me. <laughs> Have you ever heard of such a thing? It's breathtaking. There's nothing like this. Only God could think of something this crazy and yet this beautiful and amazing that He would give His only Son. His only Son. Now, I, was, I was thinking about that last night. I, I told you about the, the this, uh, members in our church who, who lost their daughter last night. and um, I had the privilege of uh, being there when their daughter passed away. And... I mean, no, no parents should never have to watch their children die. It just doesn't make any sense. And I was thinking about that, and and after she passed away, I prayed with the family. But you know, like, what are you going to say? You know, it's like they don't teach you that in seminary. <laughs> That's the stuff you're like. And as I was praying for them as they were holding their daughter, I was, uh, I, I just prayed. You know, thank you, God, that you're a God who gave up your own son. Not that your son was taken from you, Father, but you gave and sacrificed your son for us. What a great gift God has given us. That he loves us so much that he would send his own son to bear the wrath of sin. You can't even get your mind, begin to get your mind around it. What does the cross mean? Why did Jesus die? Let me put it this way. On the cross, God himself sacrificed Himself in order to save us from Himself. That was the cross. God Himself, in the person of Jesus, sacrificed Himself to save us from Himself. And it was because Jesus bore the wrath of God, because He gave His life to endure the judgment that I deserve, It's because of that that verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So all those barriers between me and God have just been ripped open. 
It was God who put His hands on that curtain. And because Jesus had paid the penalty, the barriers are now gone. Because my sin has been paid for and the love of God welcomes me in. That's what was going on on the cross. That's why Jesus died. So that me and you, sinful people, could enter in forgiven to the presence of God as God's justice was satisfied on the cross. So what does this mean for us? Let me suggest just quickly as we close here, two things that we need to do with this, two ways we should respond to this amazing story of Jesus' death. And the first is this. The first one is this. Draw near. The way is open, so draw near. Go toward God. There is now nothing between you and God except your own stubborn will. Repent and go to God. Jesus has opened the door. Embrace Jesus and there is a way in. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how badly you've fouled up your life or the the decisions you've made. At any moment, any of us can turn to Christ. And there is a way to God now. The way is open. Draw near to Him. In fact, turn in your Bibles. uh, Just one more verse. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. It's on page... 1191 in the Pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 10, page 1191. Look what it says in verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, page 1191. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, what? The most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We can now go in that sacred room where no one else could enter. By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is this body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the command, let us draw near to God. So that's the first thing you need to do is draw near to God. Don't let anything hold you back. Turn away from your old life and go to Jesus. You can enter. You know, I was thinking what to do uh, here in our church. I had this kind of crazy idea. I was like, we ought to put a huge sign, one of these banners over the front of the church, like a big 40-foot banner that covers the whole front of the church. And it sits around Hingham, you know, in like blaze orange or something. Um, <laughs> that, that, that says, Grand Opening. You know, this, you see those big Grand Opening signs? We just put one in front of our church, Grand Opening, and people would be like, what? Is there a new church? Did they build the building here? You know, so they they come into our church, they'd be looking around, they'd be like, where's the grand opening? You know, and people... Well, we'd be like, yeah, there's a grand opening into the presence of God that was made through Jesus. And you know, the great thing about grand openings is you could go in like totally scuzzy and, you know, bedhead and garbage clothes, but they want everyone in the grand openings. You, you can walk in, they're not going to kick you out. They'd be like, oh, welcome to the grand opening. Go into a grand opening store. They're not going to throw you out. That's what the grand opening is about. It's to draw people in. And so we can come to the Father as is and allow the blood of Jesus to forgive us and cleanse us. And we can now go in to the most holy place and know God personally. And so that's the first thing is draw near. And that, that only, not only applies to those of us who have never drawn near to God and we need to come to Jesus for the first time, but I think it's a continual call to believers. Because remember, the book of Hebrews was written to Christians. not to. This is an evangelistic track. This is written to Christians. And so he says, brothers. That's what he says in verse 19. Let us draw near. 
And so as Christians, we need to keep drawing near to Christ. And the Christian life is a continual process of drawing nearer, drawing nearer, getting to know the Lord more, and letting His life be our life. But not only is there a command to draw near, I think another command is that we need to go near. And by that I mean we then, after we've drawn near to God, we need to go near people who need to hear about Jesus. Because I think the ripping of the curtain is not only about us coming in, but the ripping of the curtain is also about God going out. It's like uh, some of you guys, the old high school football games, remember those? At least this used to do in my school. Is they would uh, they'd have a big piece of paper, and it, our, our school was the Eagles, and it would say, Go Eagles on it. And the cheerleaders would be like, Go Eagles. And they would have this big piece of paper. And like the start of the game, the football team would run through the piece of paper. And they'd burst out to you know, mild enthusiasm in the, in the crowd. And, and our, our football team would run out onto the field. And, and I, sent, you know, I was thinking about the curtain being torn. It's not only access for us, it's also God like bursting out. So that in the new covenant, the whole temple system is kaput. It's done. We're done with temple. The whole temple system was, you want to meet God, you come to Jerusalem, He's in the temple. In the new covenant, God now moves out. The temple is gone. And what's the temple in the New Covenant? Us. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. That's the whole book of Acts. The whole book of Acts is about God through the temple, which is us, the church, moving out. You know, we are the church. Uh, this building, as you know, is not the church. I've, I've been struggling. I think I found a name for what we should call this building. Because we call it the church, but it's not the church. We're the church. It's not a temple. We call it the sanctuary, but it's not really a sanctuary. I mean, we're the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. So I, no, I, I thought of a name. We should just call this place the Meeting House. Yeah, that's kind of an old, classic New England thing. Isn't that what it is? It's a meeting house. The church meets here. And it's a special place because this is where we meet to worship God, but it's just a meeting house. The church comes to its meeting house, and that's what, who we are. And so when we begin to see ourselves as the living temple, not a structure of concrete and mortar, but a living temple made of living stones of which we are all a part we then see that, okay, we need to go out and go near to people to tell them that they can draw near to God through Christ. So there's a going in and a going out and a wonderful dynamic, dynamic that takes place when the Gospel is having its effect. We need to go near to people. Who do you know that, that needs you to go near them? Who are those people who you're like, oh man, those people are wicked lost. <laughs> They're never going to come to God. I mean, whew, that person is so far away. Like I, you know, and, and they hang out in places that I don't even want to be. So how can I even talk to them because they're there? We need to go near them. And so as we move out from here on a Sunday morning, we've drawn near to be encouraged by God. And then we need to go near to the people on the South Shore, which is our mission field right here. We need to reach this area for Christ. We talked about being a biblical church earlier and having elders. Another mark of a biblical church Biblical churches are evangelizing churches. Biblical churches are evangelizing. We go out and we take the love of God and the message of that anyone can draw near to the whole South Shore of Boston and beyond. You know, one of my favorite go-near stories, and I'll close with this, one of my favorite go-near stories is uh, the story of George Whitfield. Some of you have heard of his name. He was one of the leaders of the Great Awakening in the uh, 1700s, the Great Awakening that swept over England and swept over America and 
along with John Wesley, uh, Whitfield was one of the main preachers. He really was the main preacher in the Great Awakening with Wesley kind of his understudy. But uh, Whitfield um, preached in London. He's this young man in his early 20s. He's standing up in the commons in London and literally tens of thousands of people are gathering to hear him as he tells the good news that you can draw near to God through Christ. And people are coming to the Lord. But there was this group of people up in a place called uh, Kingswood and they were coal miners. And everybody had kind of written off these coal miners because they, they were kind of poor and they were ignorant and they were rough and it was a tough area to be. And there were no religious works there because it was like, eh, you don't go to the coal miners. But Whitfield had them on his heart. He said, you know, the gospel needs to go near to the people who need to hear it the most. And so, in a, I think it was like February of one year, he, he traveled up there and he went around. You could just see this guy in his, his minister's robes going around all these dirty coal miners in their dirty lives and their dirty villages and inviting them. He's like, I'm going to be preaching. There's going to be a sermon tomorrow. Come and hear the message. And so they came and he preached and then they came again and he preached. And within a very short time, there were tens of thousands of coal miners pressing in to hear this good news. And, and there's this one scene, this, this famous line that always gets me. It, Whitfield describes looking out over the sea of coal miners and he's preaching the message to them. And all their faces and their whole bodies are, are covered with soot because they're in the coal mines. And they're, they're black. He says, except on their faces they have these white gutters because of the tears that are pouring down their faces as they hear the amazing news that even these dirty, forgotten coal miners can draw near through the blood of Christ. And so Whitfield says he looks out and he sees a sea of dark faces with white lines going down their face as the gospel message touches them. Jesus Christ died on the cross to assuage the wrath of God so that you and I could draw near and then having drawn near, we could go near to others and bring the good news of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, stir our hearts to draw near to You. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who's never made that step of entering into the most holy place by the blood of Christ, that even now, Lord Jesus, You would draw them in. That they would leave behind their old life of sin and surrender themselves to You. And Lord, I pray for those of us who know You, Jesus, that we would draw nearer and nearer. That You would keep wooing us further in and closer to Yourself. And Lord, I pray that You would send us out to go near to the people who need to hear about You the most. That we would not allow social boundary lines and cultural conventions to keep us from bringing the love of God and the message of a, of a crucified Savior to the world. And so, Lord, use us. Empower us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Just you take your worship bulletins and let's sing our closing hymn.